Hi everyone, my name's Emily and today I'm going to be reading from Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favour with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? the man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is in, with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Well, um, I, I wonder if you've ever had um, in your life <clears throat> something happened to you that is so remarkable, uh, so random and fortuitous that um, you wondered to yourself if, if it was God that made it happen. Um, perhaps you pr prayed for something to happen and suddenly it, it did happen but it was so like unlikely to have occurred uh, that you have a sense of God's work in your life. Perhaps you prayed um, for the weather to stop, you know, raining so that you could have your outdoor event or your outdoor party and then suddenly the clouds parted and the sun shone um, Perhaps you hadn't studied enough for your test at school and you prayed, asking God to um, help you do well in the, in the test and then you got a really good score. Or perhaps you're um, driving in uh, you know, the supermarket at uh, Northland at Christmas Eve and you have to buy those last few presents and there's no parks anywhere and it's a 40 degree day and you pray and pray and then a car park appears. Perhaps you're praying right now for a job and, and perhaps some of you got a job. Well, I'm on the board of a startup magazine called Soul Tread. It's a Christian, um, Christian magazine for millennials and it's, it's the first edition's uh, coming out this year. 
And um, it's the project of a, of a woman called Rachel Lopez. Some of you might know her. And it's a really a bold initiative because it's a hard copy magazine, glossy kind of thing, you know, and it's going to be quarterly. And so getting something like that off the ground, it's really difficult. And, you know, some people look at it and go, why would you be doing hard copy magazines in this time of electronic com- communication? But anyway, Rachel's convinced of, of the need for it. And uh, this month we've had a Kickstarter campaign. And the way Kickstarter works is that people give to these new um, entrepreneurial projects online and um, you set a target. And the thing is, if you don't reach the target, you don't get any of the money. All the pledges that people make, the money goes back into their accounts. But if you get over the line, then uh, you get the money. And so it was about a week before uh, and we were up to about 21000 of 30000 and we needed nine more thousand dollars in the next week. And uh, the giving had plateaued. We'd seen an initial burst of giving in the, in the first week and then sort of it f- flattened out and then it sort of dropped. And the week, that preceding week, we'd hardly got any giving into the Kickstarter campaign and Rachel was really nervous. She called us to pray and we prayed. And literally within two days, we got the full $9,000. And by, with five days to go, we were past we're up to $31,000 and we were all rejoicing and, um, you know, we were saying how, God, how great is God working um, to, to remove the obstacles and to prompt people to give. Um, and that's what kind of Christian life is like, isn't it? That we, we worship an invisible God and we talk to him and yet we see him work in different ways around us in remarkable ways um, through um, natural means through normal ways, but also through um, supernatural um, ways as well. And in the book of Esther, uh, we see God at work, but in an invisible way. And in fact, he's not even mentioned in the whole book. And yet, as we shall see uh, from this chapter and from other chapters, as we read through the book of Esther, he really is at work. We ended last week in the story with uh, the orphan Jewish girl Esther um, being taken in to the Persian king Xerxes' harem Um, and then he chose her because of her great beauty to be his queen. And then Esther's uncle Mordecai overheard a plot plot to assassinate the king and he had passed on the information to Esther who'd passed it on to the king and so uh, the king looked favorably upon Mordecai. And this week we, we jumped to chapter 7. So I want to give you a rundown of the, um, of the chapters between 2 and 7 just so that you know the storyline because this is one of those stories which is one contained story and you need to know what's happened uh, to uh, be able to follow along. So um, let me talk to you about Esther chapter 3. Well, um, Xerxes promoted his official Haman to be his most senior advisor and um, everyone had to bow down to him, but Mordecai refused. And uh, even after the royal officials question him and urge him, he still, re- uh, he still refuses. So Haman was so enraged with Mordecai that he decided not only to punish him, but to punish all of his people group, the Jewish people. And Haman, the chief advisor to Xerxes advised the king Xerxes to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. He calls them these people whose customs are different. 
He's a real anti-Semitic um, character, Haman. And um, these people who do not obey the king's laws, he says. Haman was even willing to give 10,000 talents to, to, uh, or 340 tons of silver to the king's administrators to make this happen. He wanted to pay for it. That's how angry he was. And now Xerxes didn't require the money, but he did agree to the decree and made an edict to kill and annihilate. This is real gruesome stuff. To kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Well, if you jump to chapter 4, this caused all the Jews in the empire to grieve and Mordecai to put on sackcloth and ashes at the king's gate. Using her uh, eunuchs, as messengers, because the eunuchs served in the uh, in the palace and especially served the queen, Esther communicated to her distressed uncle Mordecai that she would she was going to come up with a plan, um, and she wanted to, wanted him to get all the Jews in in Susa in that in the city that they were living in to fast and pray over three days for her, and she would go to the king and plead for him to stop this terrible edict. And she was putting her life at risk because, you know, if we remember back to last week, the previous queen, what happened to her? She got kicked out for doing the wrong thing, kicked out of the palace forever. So who knows how Xerxes was going to respond to Esther's request. And, and, and uh, you know, Esther had not seen him for 30 days. He had not even wanted to, to talk to his queen for a whole month. Anyway, we jump to chapter 5. And Esther went and paraded her beauty near the king's um, uh, hall so that he could notice her. And he does notice her and he yells out to her, Hello, Esther, what would you like me to give you? I'll give you anything. And she says, Come together with Haman today to a banquet I have prepared. And so they went to her banquet. There are lots of banquets in this book of Esther. And again, Xerxes says to her, now tell me what you want. This is the banquet now. They're drinking wine and eating food. I'll give you anything. And she, she thinks to herself, I've got them to one banquet. I'll see if I can get them to another banquet. And so she says, come, come with Haman tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for you. Then I will answer your question. So Haman went home excited, gloating to his wife and uh, his friends about his wealth and his success and boasting about how the queen has just invited him with the king to a special banquet. But um, Haman still complained that Mordecai was still publicly uh, grieving at the king's gate with sackcloth and ashes and it was just annoying Haman. And also that Mordecai was still not bowing down to him. That was the, the biggest issue. So... His friends and his wife, this is Haman's friends and wife, encouraged him to execute Mordecai and to set up a pole outside the king's um, gate 23 metres high to execute Mordecai. And then he could go to the banquet and enjoy himself and forget about it. Well, that brings us to chapter 6. And chapter 6 is a real turning point because at that night... Xerxes is in bed and he can't sleep. He's staying up late. And so, like many of us who like to read um, or listen to a podcast at night when we can't get to sleep, that's what Xerxes did. He asked for the podcast or the, the, uh, the books, the, the chronicles of the, of the royal record. 
And uh, as that was being read out to him about how things, what, what things had happened in the empire, he was reminded about Mordecai and how Mordecai had exposed the assassination plot and, and the king, how, how, how that saved the king's life. And, and so Xerxes thought to himself, have I ever even honoured Mordecai for this great act that he did? So he decided he wanted to do that and he called Haman into the court who, who was on his way to tell Xerxes about the plan to execute Mordecai. But instead, Xerxes said to Haman, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And Haman assumes Xerxes is talking about him. So Haman says, bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honour and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honour. But to Haman's shock, the king sends him to Mordecai to carry out these instructions. And he led Mordecai, and Haman led Mordecai out to the streets to honor him, um, all the while freaking out because, you know, he, he was planning to execute Mordecai the next day, and so what was the king going to say about that? Again, Haman rushed home to tell his wife and friends what had happened, and you see at the end of chapter 6, his wife and friends realize Haman's in trouble and it's like they turn on him with no compassion, perhaps, perhaps even enjoying the predicament he's in and they declare that his downfall has begun. And that brings us to chapter 7, Esther's second banquet. And this is what Emily read out to us. And let me go a bit slower now and reflect on this chapter. The stakes are high at this banquet. The chapter focuses on Esther's second banquet and Xerxes, Haman and Esther are enjoying a meal together. The stakes are high. The drama is dynamite. Xerxes is oblivious to the reality of the social dynamics of what's going on in this dinner party, in this big banquet. Haman is in a panic because he has planned to kill Mordecai, but the king is honouring Mordecai, and his friends and wives have predicted his own demise. On the other hand, he's probably happy to wash down his anxiety with copious amounts of alcohol. Esther also, it's her party, and she has a cunning yet very dangerous plan to turn the tables on Haman and save her people. Well, we, we come to Esther's careful request. The king asks the queen, what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And she says in verse 3, grant me my life. This is my petition and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we have merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. This is the carefully spoken art of persuasion. She words things in such a way that the king doesn't feel like he was part of any genocidal plan. Not that he knows that that's even what she's talking about, but she's about to reveal that. Um, 
Xerxes doesn't even know that Esther's a Jew, remember. She's kept it a secret. And so he has no clue that this, uh, the edict to kill the Jews is going to involve the killing of his own queen. Um, her words describe the deal that Haman made with the king to give him a lot of money as well. But her words are very careful and sparing so as not to say too much too soon. She doesn't want to sound like she's blaming the king. She uses the passive voice. She says, my people have been sold to be destroyed. She doesn't yet specify who specifically is selling them. She knows that the king is a proud man. She, she remains, so she remains humble and subservient in her words. You know, she says, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. She says in verse 4, and this sounds like a weird thing to say, but you know, in those days, it wasn't in that part of the world. It wasn't that unusual for minority groups to be sold into slavery. She was familiar with slavery, as we learned last week. Looking at chapter two, she was sold into sexual slavery to the king. Effectively, she says, "If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king." <coughs> It's, this is a fuzzy kind of sentence that she says. The word distress could easily be translated as enemy from the Hebrew as well. And that's the way the NRSV Bible translated. So NRSV says, because no such enemy would justify disturbing the king. Well, this might explain, this, this, word, this uh, word enemy might explain what, why the king then says this dramatic question. Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing, this enemy? The king of one of the most powerful empires the world had ever known was oblivious to the fact that his queen was about to expose his second in charge and fellow drinking buddy. Meanwhile, Haman knows full well that he's been set up and cornered by Esther. The king had asked twice, who is he? Where is he? And Queen Esther answers twice, an adversary and enemy. This vile Haman, she points the finger. And Haman realizes he is in massive trouble. It's the two against one. It's the king and queen against him. They are united. And then we see Xerxes' anger. He rises up in rage like an angry lion, um, as scholar Harriet Stowe puts it. And he rushes out to the garden to have a private minute with himself. We don't know for sure why he does this, but it looks like Xerxes was perhaps feeling guilty of his involvement in the whole um, annihilation of the Jews' edict. And he needed a plan to save face and make things right. Xerxes realized that his favorite and most senior advisor, Haman, had played him and ordered the destruction of Esther's own people. But why the king would run out of the room and leave his queen with the man who had been planning to kill her people is a bit baffling. But the book of Esther is filled with lots of moments like this, isn't it? Lots of strange random events that or, or, or bizarre events. 
And then it says it, it talks about Haman having this last-ditch effort to try and talk Esther out of, out of what she's doing to save his own life. So while the king's outside, Haman re- remained with Esther to beg for his life. And it says he lounged on the couch. He, he fell on the couch, it says. Now, the old rabbis, when they wrote about Esther, they used to speculate that Haman didn't fall on the couch down, but, but God pushed him down. Perhaps this was divine intervention. And remember that Haman's wife um, and his friends had told him uh, that Esther would be the cause of his fall. His falling on the couch is like a visual metaphor of, of this. Either way, when Xer- Xerxes returns to the banquet hall and sees Haman lounging or falling across the, Esther's couch, he suddenly had the perfect excuse for protecting Esther and getting rid of Haman. And so Xerxes uh, accuses Haman. He, he says in verse 8, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Xerxes may have been drunk and interpreted Haman's posture as like some kind of, um, you know, romantic move on on his wife. And this, this is the sort of thing that used to happen in those days in the politics in a palace. Um, perhaps he was making this into a perfect opportunity, or perhaps he, yeah, genuinely thought that that Haman was doing making a move on the throne. Um. Xerxes already knew that there had been at least one conspiracy to assassinate him. Maybe he thought Haman was, might have been behind it. Either way, Xerxes has plenty of good reasons to turn on his Prime Minister, Haman. And look at the end of verse 8. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they, that is the, um, the king's officials, covered Haman's face. And then at the end of the chapter, Haman is condemned to death. King's attendants obviously interpret the king's words as meaning that Haman was in, w- would be put to death. And Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, who's mentioned earlier in chapter 1 briefly, um, let Xerxes know about the poll that uh, Haman had set up a, for Mordecai outside the palace. And, and this was the same Mordecai that the king had publicly honoured the day before. The whole of Susa would have known about that poll, but not Xerxes until now. Haman once had the support of the other officials and workers in the palace, but not anymore. They would have gone along with the whole plan to kill all the Jews in service of Haman, but now that the tables have turned, the eunuchs and everyone else have shifted their allegiance away from him. No one wants to be on the side of a dead man walking. And Xerxes, who always seems in the book of Esther to take the advice of those around him, agrees with his eunuch that Haman's own impaling pole was the perfect way to execute Haman. Impale him on it, he says in verse 9. <sighs> take a breath. In Shakespeare's Hamlet, Act 3, verse, uh, scene 4, um, Hamlet finds a letter bearing orders for his death. And so he alters the letter, arranging instead for the deaths of his uncles, henchmen, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, And he says, 
famously, this is Hamlet speaking. For tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard, and shall go hard, but I will delve one yard below their minds and blow them at the moon. Now, you might not know what that means. A petard is an old medieval um, sort of grenade, like a small bomb. Um, it comes from the French word um, pété, which I, you know, you can look that up, what it, what it means, but it's kind of an explosive sound. You'll see if you look it up. It's a kind of grenade, um, petard. The explosives were so unreliable and dodgy back then that what used to happen is um, they would misfire spontaneously. So the engineer might be blowing a hole in a tunnel to, um, you know, get through and attack the enemy, but on the way, uh, the bomb blows up and the engineer is hoist, in other words, lifted up by his own bomb. Um, and what this basically means is, um, you know, the, the, the phrase from Hamlet, uh, "'Tis the sport to have the engineer hoist with his own petard," it means that it's referring to what happens when you have a, a plot to, um, you know, uh, kill someone or, or, or do something nasty to someone, and then that is turned back on you and you receive your own medicine. And we see Haman was hoist by his own petard. He would be impaled by his own execution pole intended for his enemy Mordecai. Well, we've got to talk about what this means. And I want to talk about this idea of coincidences. Esther's plan is only possible because of a series of of remarkable coincidences, which we should see as, we can also see as providences, and I'll talk about that in a second. God intervenes for her over and over again. When Xerxes has a sleepless night in chapter 6 and remembers to honour Mordecai, the whole story pivots. Haman sets up a pole to kill Mordecai, which is finally the instrument of his own execution. Haman's wife and friends warning that those who oppose the Jews come to ruin, which increases his terror when Esther accuses him. Xerxes returns from the garden and sees Haman falling on Esther's couch and condemns him to death. And so, you know, we see one thing after another, these coincidences that drive the plot line forward. And uh, scholar John Levinson says about these kind of coincidences, he, he describes them as, a coincidence is a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. That's a good way to think about it. And Esther really is a book of coincidences. These are, another way to think about them is they're, they're invisible moments of grace. And another way to think about um, coincidences as a Christian is by thinking of the idea of providences. They are God's providential care for his world and his people, as uh, Peter Adam puts it. God constantly cares and provides for the universe he made, and he does it in two ways. Firstly, he supernaturally provides for the world and its people um, by sustaining the universe. That's what God does. He our bodies continue to function, the, the planets continue to um, rotate around the sun. The laws of nature continue, and this is God's care for all creation, animate and inanimate objects, all people, not just believers. But there's a second way that God supernaturally provides for um, 
for us in unusual and miraculous ways. This is when he works in a mysterious way that is that does, does not con- correspond to his usual pattern. Sometimes he achieves this without using normally created methods, like when he rose Jesus from the dead. And then other times he just uses normal created methods um, to supernaturally intervene, like when he um, drives the sea back uh, with an east wind and saves the Hebrew people as they flee from Egypt. What makes the miraculous, what makes this miraculous and divinely significant is the timing of it. But notice that both the two kind of concepts that I just mentioned are supernatural in, in, in that they require God's unique and absolute power. You might see the first as natural, but if you've got faith in God, this natural is in fact supernatural because God is at work. It's easy to be a pure scientist and say that what Christians might call providences are in fact just coincidences. But as Kierkegaard argues, providences are like salvation because they're both received by faith. The person who receives a coincidence and a pro- as a providence believes that God is actually caring for them and is interested in their life. But as we think about this, we have to be careful not to be superstitious. Not every coincidence is God working. Just because you really need the red light to change at the traffic lights and then it, it changes to green just as you're approaching doesn't mean that God is moving the traffic light to change the course of history just for you. Accidents of timing happen as, as well. The world is somewhat random. And sometimes you roll the dice and it lands on double six and you get a 12 and you land on Mayfair and nobody else has bought Mayfair and you're able to buy Mayfair and suddenly you're winning Monopoly. Lucky you, but that's not necessarily a providence. Jesus says in Matthew 7 that some who worked miracles in his name were actually evildoers. And the second beast of Revelation 13 performs great great signs to draw people to idolatry. You've got to be careful to not be superstitious when you're talking about coincidences. I've heard people say that because a coincidence happened, it must be from God. But this is dangerous thinking. It can lead us to sin. Think of King David, who just happened to be walking on the rooftop And Bathsheba happened to be naked and bathing herself across on on another rooftop. And Bathsheba's husband Uriah happened to be away so that David could have adultery with her. David could have said, well, it must be God's doing, but of course not. This just led him to sin. Sometimes random stuff just happens And it can seem like what people say, synchronicity, you might have heard that. Like a mind is behind it or like the forces of the universe are behind it. My dad has a sister called Ruth. My mum has a sister called Ruth. My wife has a sister called Ruth. 
My mother's mother's name is Dorothy Jean. My father's mother's name is Jean Dorothy. Coincidences or providence? Sometimes the random stuff just happens and you don't want to make too much of it. We don't want to draw massive theological conclusions from things like that, while all the things I just said are true. Also, we don't want to take God for granted when we're thinking about this. God is working all the time. And so as we think about his providential power, we shouldn't only look for it in the miraculous. God is always working in the small and the, and the normality of the everyday. And the book of Esther testifies to this. There are actually no great miracles in the book of Esther in the sense that, you know, there's no um, walking on the water moments or um, resurrections or anything like that. Rather, God uses small and natural ways um, through Esther and Mordecai and even the people around them, the, 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 you know, the Persian king and, and even Haman, you could say, and Haman's friends and wife. And he's, God is working to achieve his good and perfect plans. And God is working right now in our lives and in the world to keep us alive and perhaps even to intervene sometimes. This is the truly remarkable work of God. But we should, so, so for that reason, we, we don't want to overplay miracles. We want to actually see God in the normality as well. As we think about this, we, we should um, pray. Because if you want to see more providences, um, more divine coincidences in your life, then you should pray for them. We're actually more likely to notice these God, God at work if we're praying about it, if we're asking for things. Think back to the story that I said at the start about um, our magazine and the Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we prayed and we saw God work. William Temple, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, he um, said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't pray, they don't. <laughs> I love that sort of simplicity. It's good. One really important caveat in our thinking is um, about, as we think about providences, is that sometimes God intervenes miraculously and works to help us and to save us. And sometimes... He sends providences of affliction. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, and this really, this topic deserves a whole sermon in itself. But this is basically to say sometimes God's miraculous intervention relieves the suffering of his people, but other times he sends affliction for our testing. Hebrews 12 says, Endure hardships, endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as his children. And then no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So sometimes when we experience hardship, we should not assume that God is punishing us, but rather that God is strengthening us. And, and that's another, another kind of providence. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And we see providences of affliction in the book of Esther. She faces the vindictive wrath of Haman and the grief of all her people in, in the Persian Empire as they read this edict sent out. And this uh, wrath of affliction actually drives her to save her people. 
And of course, this concept of a providence of affliction we see most powerfully in Jesus, who happened to have one disciple who would betray him, Judas, and who would happen to be praying at the garden at the time when he could be arrested, and who happened to be arrested at Passover when the tradition was that one prisoner could be freed from execution and the crowd would happen to choose Barabbas and there would happen to be a man who had a tomb that Jesus could be buried in. There are a lot of providences in the Gospels that lead to Jesus' death on the cross and this led him to save the world. So as we finish up, as we think about these God-given coincidences or providences, these visible moments of grace, let's notice them in our lives. Let's rejoice when they occur. And let's trust in God's invisible grace, working behind the scenes in small and large ways, in noticeable and discreet ways. Let's be mature in our thinking and learn to see God working in our lives all the time, working all things for his glory. Amen.